Hi, this is Chris Sorensen. Welcome to Brookville Road Community Church Podcast. If you haven't done so already, please take a moment to check out our website at brookvilleroad.cc for all the latest information about what's going on at Community Church. I hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in becoming a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. Well, good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here with us, those that are joining us online as well, those that are joining us uh, on their fall break in Florida. Oh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's cold here. Uh, so anyway, it's so good to have you. Hey, if you've come today and, and maybe uh, you're just trying to figure out Christianity or maybe you've just become a Christian, I think this is a really good Sunday, a good message for you because what we're going to talk about today, it's basic. It, it's foundational. It's 101. Now, we're in the book of 1 Corinthians. That's in the New Testament. It's written by a guy named Paul, and he's writing it to a church that he started in Corinth. And one of the things he's already talked about is is food offered to idols. Now, I know that's not something that we have in our culture, but that's what they were dealing with. And today, as we're back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're in verse 14, last time we ended up in verse 13, where he said, when you're tempted, then God's faithful, and he's going to provide a way of escape. Now, verse 14, therefore, God's going to provide a way of escape when you're tempted. Therefore, my beloved, now hang on to the word beloved, because we're going to come back to that. Beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, beloved means you're loved, right? And this, this is a, a love from God, and it's an unconditional kind of love. It's not a fleeting, you know, kind of flaky kind of love that comes and goes with emotions. No, this, this is a covenantal kind of unconditional love by God for his children. He loves us, and this isn't about us and how good we are. It's not about you and I and how we perform for this God. It's based on God and not you. Because if this was based on on us, if it was based on our performance, he wouldn't love us. Because some days, you know, our performance in our own mind, some days we're good. And then some days, not so good. Then we're bad. And some days, we're badder. I know it's not a word unless you're, you know, batting or making a cake or something. But, you know, we're not that great. So his love, which is fantastic, it's consistent for us. It's not based on how good you are. It's based on him because the Bible tells us that on the inside of us, we're, we're not good. It, the Bible says that, in fact, our righteousness is like filthy rags on our best day. Now, as good as we can be, when we hold ourselves up against the perfection and the holiness of God, man, we fall short. So thank God he consistently loves us. There, there's a theological word for this. Uh, get ready. Here it is. Immutability. Immutability means that God is unchanging, that God is the same. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 13, verse 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's consistent. This is based on his love. So his love for us, this is good because it doesn't change like we change with our feelings. This is based on his immutability, his character, his goodness, all right? It's based on his goodness. His love is the love that you've been looking for. 
And so I would say if you've come in here and, and you have not yet stepped into what it means to be a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ, this love that we're talking about, you being beloved, it's what you have been looking for. And this is good. And because you're loved, and now because you love God, we read flee from idolatry, run away from idolatry. Now, idolatry is anything that we put in front of God. It could be uh, like what was happening in, in the time when Paul was writing, where people were breaking the second commandment all over the place, and, and they had formed graven images. Second commandment, you shall not have any graven or carved images. Uh, they had little stone statues. They had uh, statues carved out of wood and stone. And we think about that, and we're like, oh, good. Well, I'm not idolatrous because I don't have a, a statue. I mean, I know celebrities who have a gold statue uh, in their house. They call an Oscar and like they've worshiped it, but I don't have one of those. And so I am not idolatrous, but idolatry is anything that you put in front of God, even good things. You, you could put good things in front of God, like your family or your job. You could put comfort, anything that comes before God, that's an idol because that breaks the first commandment. Remember the first commandment of God? You'll have no other gods before you. There's only one, number one. And that's God. And he wants first place in our lives. Nothing else should be before God. Now think about in our own culture, our own time, uh, in, in modern living, how it is that idol worship begins to play itself out. Remember back in 2008 when we experienced the last recession, everything kind of fell apart. There was a string of suicides. You, you had a, a Freddie Mac CFO who committed suicide. Up in Chicago, there was a, a gentleman who had a lot of money. He was involved in real estate auctions, and he got in his red Jaguar and put a rifle in his mouth. And that happened dozens and dozens of times. What was going on? Well, these individuals, they put their trust in materialism. They put their trust in money. And then when all those things begin to fall apart, when we think that when we can put our hope and our trust in our bank account, in the money, in our possessions. We think that it's going to fulfill us with joy. And when those things are taken away, we're disillusioned because they make terrible gods. When we lose something that we've put our faith, our trust in, that we think is going to bring us some happiness, man, we just end up disillusioned. And of course, this isn't new to us. This is something that was going on in Paul's day. In fact, as he's writing, uh, there were all kinds of gods. They made up all these different kinds of stories about these false gods, and, and uh, one of them was Aphrodite. Right there in Corinth, they would worship Aphrodite. She was the goddess of beauty. They had put there in Corinth a temple to Apollo, and, and Apollo is, is said to be the, the son of Zeus. Uh, you could go over to Ephesus, and they were really into Artemis. They, they worshiped Ares and Mars, the gods of war. And what you had to do is, in some way, you had to sacrifice to these gods in order to get something from them that you, you would want them to do for you. And even before this period, you go back into the Old Testament, and what do we read in the Bible? And we, we see Asherah, and we see Baal, we see Molech. Remember reading about Molech? People would sacrifice their babies to Molech. That's still going on. Back in 2020... There was an actress, uh, you probably don't know her, uh, named Busy Phillips. Busy Phillips stood on the steps of the Supreme Court, and she bragged about how her abortion uh, helped her in her success in her career. What was she doing? She sacrificed her baby for success. 
People sacrifice their babies for far less. How is that any different than sacrificing to Molech? People will sacrifice their money, their time, their energy, their children for their God. And this works its way into our hearts, even today. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we read this passage from Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3, where God says to Ezekiel, son of man, say to these men that they have taken their idols into their hearts. We still have idols that we take into our hearts. Say you have an idol of beauty. What happens if your idol is beauty and you get a scar on your face? What happens if your idol is beauty and you gain weight? What happens if your idol is beauty and you begin to age? Well, we do anything and everything that we can in order to get beauty back. People would put their time, their money, their energy into their idols. What if money is your idol? What happens when it's taken away? What happens when everything tanks? Everything is gone. What happens when your home is gone? How do you feel when you've placed all of your hope, all of your trust in that thing? What happens when your spouse dies? You've been worshiping your spouse. You put them first, and now... Your savior's gone. All of these idols, they end up being functional saviors for us. We put our hope, we put our faith, we put our trust in these things, things that aren't necessarily bad, but they've been moved to a position that usurp who God is and the worship that he longs to have in our lives. When these things fail you, and they will fail you because they are not God, and they're a poor sacrifice for God, when they're gone, you'll be crushed. You'll be crushed if you have put your faith and your trust in them. So very practically, what would it like, look like for us to kind of evaluate whether or not we have an idol in our heart today? Well, one author says there's a few things that we can begin to run through a grid and evaluate whether or not we have idols. The, the first thing that he would say that we could look at is we need to evaluate what we think about. What do you think about? Evaluate your imagination, Evaluate your imagination. What are you thinking about? What, what do you spend your thought process on? What, what websites are you scrolling? That may reveal an idol. What do you think about most? The second thing he says is you need to evaluate what you spend your money on. Where, where does your money go? Uh, what kinds of things are you buying? Does Amazon need to set up like a conveyor belt right, right to your house, right? Jesus said, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So we tend to invest and put our money in those things that we love. So evaluate your imagination. What are you thinking about most often? Evaluate your finances. What are you spending your money on? And then number three, evaluate your uncontrolled emotions. Your uncontrolled emotions. What do you freak out about? What do you get depressed over? What do you get angry about? Underneath those things, you very likely may find an idol. So we, what do we have to do? So let's say we've got something that's tugging on our hearts and it's beginning to move its place up the ladder and God is no longer number one. What do we need to do? Well, the Bible tells us here we need to flee from idolatry. We need to flee from those idols. And the way that you flee from an idol isn't just simply by hating it. That's not going to work. You can't just simply say, I hate this or I hate this thing. You can't do that. You have to flee to something. You have to flee to someone. You've got to start loving God and his righteousness more than you love your idol. You have to have something to run to. 
So we're running to God. This is how we flee an idol. So we put him first. We're going to put him and his righteousness above everything else. And so you got to come to this point where you realize, okay, God exists and God is good and God is worth running to. He is, he has worth Ship, I'm telling you, everything that you have in this life that might want to grab hold of your heart, it's worth running away from that. And God is extremely worth every bit of ounce of worship that you can give to him. God is good. He is, he is worthy of you worshiping him with all of your heart. Now, around here, we say that's going to take some time. Because we can't just simply give lip service to, oh yeah, uh, I like God, I love God, and then not have time with him. So we talk about God time. We talk about if you could just start as a starting point and give 1% of your day, like we say we love God, can you give 1% of your day to him? 15 minutes as a starting point. 15 minutes every day where you're like, well, I'm going to open God's word. I'm going to see what he has to say to me. I want to talk to him in prayer. I'm going to worship him. Can you give them 1% of your week? We take about an hour and a half and you gather with others and we just come together and we declare God's worth and his glory and his majesty. And here you are, right? So what would happen when we begin to invest our time in what we say we worship? The only way you're going to flee from idolatry is to have something to run to. And I'm telling you, God is worth running to. He's a good God. And that's going to mean, yes, some discipline, it's going to mean you're going to have to like move in the direction of sanctification, which means becoming holy and allowing the purity of who he is and his Holy Spirit to change you, becoming conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. It means you're going to have to mortify your flesh. That's an old term. It just simply means it means you're going to die to your old life. You're going to die to yourself and you're going to live for him. And when we do this, man, the payoff. The payoff of putting him number one, what do we get? We get justification. We get made right in the sight of God. We get adoption as sons and daughters into the family of God. We get love and grace and peace and mercy. All of this comes from the Father when he is number one. He's good. He is worth running to. So what do we do? We're fleeing from idolatry. But we do that by fleeing to Jesus he goes on. He says this in verse 15. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless. So these Christians, they would come together. They, they would have a supper. They would have communion. And they, they would pray over this cup. He says it's not a participation in the blood of Christ. Pointing back to the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, shed his blood for our sins. He says, the bread that we break, it represents his body. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So he's talking here about the participation in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So the blood of Jesus Christ and the body of Jesus Christ was given to you so that you might experience forgiveness. So that you might know what it is to have this relationship with God. It was to bring you to God. This is good news. This is good news that you can know 
God. The good news is this. When you receive Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, bleeding and dying for you in your place, now you no longer have sin hanging over your head. You no longer have the wrath of God hanging over your life because that wrath was placed on Jesus Christ. That's good news. You want this. This is the kind of thing that you've been longing for, right? So what happened at the cross, I'll throw out another theological term. The Bible says uh, our sin was placed on him. So that word is imputed. It was given to Jesus, imputed, imparted, our sin placed on him. But it wasn't just like a single imputation. Theology says we have a double imputation. The imputation is this. We then received, he imparted his righteousness to us, which is amazing. So we come to God and through Christ, our sin imputed, given to Jesus. And then Jesus says, I'll give you my righteousness. That's crazy. Like this is the greatest exchange you could ever have. Like Jesus, I have nothing to bring. My, my righteousness, it's like filthy rags. There's nothing that I could do to work off my sin. I'm not that great. You know my heart, you know my mind, you know the things that I've done. I have nothing but my sin. And Jesus says, oh, I'll take that. You will? Yeah, I'll take that. And then Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to give you my righteousness. You're going to give me your righteousness and you're taking my sin. Yep, that's what I came to do. So here is my robe of righteousness that covers you because your own righteousness won't get you into heaven. This is beautiful. That we would experience this kind of love and forgiveness through the blood. It's a participation with Jesus on the cross. Blood has always been necessary for a sacrifice. In the past, it, it was either you bleed or you bring this animal to sacrifice over and over and you bring that as a sacrificial blood offering before God. But then Jesus comes along and then he dies on the cross once for all. So you got two options in this life. You can get on the treadmill and you can bleed it out or you can trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. One of those will get you into heaven and the other won't. And so people, when they don't put their faith and their trust in Jesus, we continue to have this guilt and this condemnation that's on the inside of us. And we feel like, man, I just need some kind of satisfaction. And so people in the world who reject this good news that Jesus Christ died in their place and rose again from the grave, people in the world will go looking for that satisfaction elsewhere. A lot of times people will go looking for self-help to bring them satisfaction. They're going to try to fix themselves up. They're going to try to do better. I'm telling you, that never, ever works. No matter how hard you work on yourself, 10 years from now, you're still going to be disappointed in you because you are not the answer to your satisfaction. If you were, you'd be satisfied by now. But we're not. I know the world feeds us with, no, you're good. You've got it made. Just work a little bit harder. Maybe just get a little more knowledge. Just try to be a little bit better than you were before. Maybe just turn it up a notch and you'll be all right. No, we are sinful apart from God. There is nothing in ourselves that is going to save us. Some people, they don't turn to themselves. Sometimes they turn to others. And so we look to somebody else to bring satisfaction into our life. Some people, they look at their spouse or they look at their kids. But that's never going to work. In fact, in fact, if you are putting that on your kids or on your spouse, then they're just going to resent you. 
because you keep placing on them your satisfaction. And like, if they're not good enough and they're not making you happy enough, well, it's just, it's impossible. And your spouse and your kids, sorry, kids, you're lousy saviors. You can't save us. There's only one who can save us. So some people, they put it in themselves. They look to others. Some people, they look to the world. Like, hey, if, if I could just look to the world and what the world has to offer, if people could affirm me and accept me, maybe I could jump into whatever stream is most acceptable right now and have everybody kind of just pat me on the back. Well, then I'll be okay. And once I get approval, then I'll be fine. But then you get there and it really didn't really satisfy like you thought it would. Or, or maybe you begin to dip into the world and you begin to look for satisfaction from alcohol or sex, power, food, some of those things, it's, it, they're gifts from God, but they make terrible saviors because all of those things begin to ensnare us. They don't save us. Some people, they don't look to self or look to others or look to the world. Some people will begin to look at religion. They'll come along and they'll see some religion that they'll want to jump into and they think, if I can make myself look just a little bit better, if I can just kind of play the part and perform for everybody and perform for God and work for him, look at me, God, look at how hard I'm working for you. Can't I get into heaven now? Can't I be satisfied? And the answer to that is no, because in and of ourselves, we hold no righteousness or ability to receive forgiveness. What we need is the righteousness of God imparted, imputed, credited to our account through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how it happens. That's what gets you off of the treadmill of this world and this life and you working and you thinking, well, I just got to make myself more loving to this God. No, you are beloved. You're beloved. Verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? So here he's starting to talk about the, the Jewish system and how they were offering these sacrifices to the one true God. And now he's going to juxtapose that kind of sacrificial system with what was happening in the pagan system. The Jewish people no longer needed to do that. Christ had come along, but they're still sacrificing in their minds to the one true God. But this stands in stark contrast to what was happening there in Corinth. And he says this, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything. So he's already had a conversation about, you know, these idols, they're not really anything, the food, it doesn't really matter what you eat. He's talked about all of that, but here he says something else, and he begins to take it to this next level. He says, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons. They offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. So Paul doesn't want them participating in these demonic things. He says, you, you can't take part in, in those things that are running counter to what you already know. You, you can't live this kind of life where there's a dichotomy. You, you can't live a, in syncretism. We talk about syncretism. It's where, where you take two different beliefs and you try to marry them together. It's not going to work. We can't live in two different worlds. We can't come along and say, well, I'm going to put one foot uh, in the kingdom of God and I'm going to leave one foot over here in the kingdom of the world. He said, that doesn't work. You can't do that. In a moment, Paul's going to say, you, you can't sit at the table of demons. You can't take a cup of demons and the cup of the Lord. You're going to have to choose where you're going to be. And again, 
It's going to mean a, a change in, in our heart, a change in affection, a change in, in the time that we begin to invest with this God. So here's the deal. When, when I gave my life to Jesus Christ, when, when he chose me, everything in my heart began to change. I, I just began, my affections began to move in his direction. So, so when, when he calls me and he begins to change my heart, I start opening the Bible and I'm reading it. Not out of a chore, not out of a job, not to try to find just like unanswered. No, I wanted to engage with the written word of God. When I began to pray, that took on new meaning, a new relationship. My, my mind began to change. My heart, my affection, all of these things, they're being reformed, renewed, reshaped. Uh, sharing the gospel was a priority uh, where I put my time and my energy, uh, money, everything that I delighted in. It was now in Christ because my affections changed. That's what God does to us when we enter into his kingdom. And maybe you, you would say, all right, that's, I, I kind of like Christianity. I'd like to be a Christian. But to be honest with you, Chris, like I'm, I'm really not into what the Bible says I should be doing. In fact, I want to do the opposite. Well, if that's you, let me just encourage you to pray this prayer. God, convert me. Convert my heart. Convert my mind. Convert my will. Convert my passions. Because isn't it true, don't you do what you most want to do? When God calls you and begins to pour his love into your heart, it begins to reshape you and your love. You do what you most want to do. You, you will give in to your inclinations and you're responsible for that. But if someone is passionate, right, about God, Everything's going to change. Like, you don't have to convince them. I don't have to guilt you into reading your Bible. You just want to read your Bible. You, you don't have to guilt me to pray. You don't have to, to guilt me to come to church or guilt me into loving other Christians. No, all of this begins to change because as believers, when we begin to see Jesus Christ as the greatest treasure, man, our heart, our affection, everything begins to move in that direction and our whole life begins to orbit around this God rather than self, rather than others, rather than this world, rather than religion. It becomes Christ. Christ is all in all. He is my every thing. And I want to sit at the table of Jesus Christ now and forever in heaven. And I don't want to sit at the table of demons because all they got to offer are scraps. This world has nothing. When you taste the goodness of God, this world has nothing. Now, I'm not saying that beauty is not good, having finances, material things. I'm telling you, Christ, Christ first, Christ foremost, Christ our life. This is the call. This is the beautiful thing of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He says this, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? There, he's saying there is a demonic force and they're very real just like angels are real just like god is real jesus is real holy spirit's real demons are real as well and there is a plan to take our eyes or keep our eyes off of god behind even good things even good things can take our mind off of 
Christ in the things of God. It is trying to derail us. That's why Paul in the book of Ephesians says, put on the full what? Armor of God. He says, put on the full armor of God. Who's he talking to? Christians. Because demons aren't just simply affecting people who are in the world. They're affecting people who are in the kingdom. And so Paul comes along, he says, suit up. Get prepared. Because there is a battle that is going on. It's the battle for hearts and souls and minds and wills. And who will people worship? Who will you worship? Who will you put first? What kingdom will you live in? You must choose. And man, when I just personally start reading things like the armor of God and realizing that there is a battle going on and it's being waged ever since the Garden of Eden and you see this whole process playing out to get to this point of Jesus Christ coming, dying for our sins, rising from the grave, conquering death, and then you enter into this church age and here we are right in the middle of all of it, waiting for the final culmination of all things where the king of kings, Jesus is king, he's coming back and we right now, we're in the middle of this battle. And for me, when I think about that, let me just talk to the guys. I mean, doesn't that get you going? Like there's a battle. We were wired for that. That's how we've been made. Not to sit back and just watch the world wash over us, but to step into what God has made us for. That we would stand together, men. That we would stand up and we would say, no, you don't get my spouse. You don't get my kids. You don't get this community. Not now, not ever. Not on our watch. So we're called to be in the battle. Don't, don't. Pretend and sit back any longer. God is calling you to get in the fight, to be engaged, because there is a very real battle, and this is the moment that we choose. What table do I sit at? The table of God or the table of this world? Who are you serving? Are you serving the Lord Jesus, or do you serve the gods of this age? Do you serve money, sex, beauty, alcohol, materialism, power? You can't serve those things and Christ. We can't live a syncretistic life. So let me ask you this. Are you a Christian? Do you have the fruit of the Spirit? Are those actions, those old actions in your life being changed and transformed? Like, is God renewing and reshaping you? We're not talking about total perfection yet, but we're talking about God moving you from where you were last year at this time or last week at this time and your heart and your affections begin to move. Are you converted? Do you have the affection for Jesus Christ? Let me just tell you, if there is anything, anything on the inside of you that says, yeah, I want Jesus, I want more of Jesus, that is God pouring his faith and love into your heart saying, you are beloved. I love you. I want you. I want you to serve me. And I'm going to be with you forever because we don't want that on our own. On our own, we want to serve ourselves. We want to serve this world. We want to push back on this God. So if there's any ounce of any of that on the inside of you, it is the Holy Spirit calling you to himself and saying, make Jesus your Lord. Die to yourself. Mortify the flesh and live for me. Just do some self-evaluation. Just think about your relationship. 
And, and don't like project and say, well, I'm not a Christian because well, I, don't, I don't like other Christians and they're hypocrites. In fact, I don't like the way that you say things, Chris. Take me out of it. I'm a loser. Who are you? Who are you on the inside? Will you receive Christ? Will you step into his kingdom? Let's pray. Father, there is an invitation that has been extended to humanity through your son, Jesus Christ, to step into reality, to step out of kind of a psychological operation that's happening from a demonic force, to step into a battle that is being waged for our own heart, our own soul, and the souls of those around us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving us enough to leave heaven and all of its glory and all of its blessings to come to this earth and die on the cross for my sin. Wash me. Cleanse me. I put my faith and my trust in you. Thank you for dying for my sins so that the wrath of God has been removed. Thank you for rising from the grave, promising me eternal life. I not only believe that you died for my sins, I believe that you rose from this grave and I make you my Lord. You are my Savior and I will walk with you. I pray that you would lead me and guide me as I reject everything that is not of you, as I flee from those things that want to grab hold of my heart and I run to you, Lord Jesus. Transform me. Change me, I pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand as we worship? Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love for you to join us at one of our weekend worship services. For service times and information about BRCC, be sure to check out brookvilleroad.cc. God bless you.